inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thank you for joining us another episode of Time to Shine. And we'll have another amazing fireside chat with two very special guests. But today we're going to talk about speaking tech. My guests today are, first of all, Heather Flanagan. She's principal at Spherical Co. Consulting and founder of the Writer's Comfort Zone. She comes from a position that the internet is led by people, powered by words, and inspired by technology. If there is work going on to develop new internet identity standards, she is probably involved. Hello, Heather. Hello, Oscar. Welcome. Thank you. And our second guest today is Greg Gazin, also known as the Gadget Guy or Gadget Greg. He's a syndicated veteran tech columnist, speaker, author, and podcaster, and six-time distinguished Toastmaster. Since 2006, he has produced the award-winning Toastcaster Communication and Leadership Learning Lab, and he co-hosts the official Toastmasters podcast. He's also authored the book Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, Helping Readers from 8 to 80, learn the secrets of building confidence, leadership, and communication skills. Hello, Greg. Hi, Oscar. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have both of you. And something that we have, the, th the three of us in common, we have at least been working in tech for a big part of our careers. So we would like to talk about that, how speak effectively inspire people in this industry. So I would like to jump the first question to, let's see who, who, who answered first. How did you start your career speaking tech? Heather, you can go ahead. <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, this wasn't what I was supposed to be when I grew up, right? My, my, my <laughs> background was actually in library science. I was supposed to be a librarian. Uh, that didn't work out. As a matter of fact, it never actually even happened. Uh, I ended up working in tech since the mid-90s. And even then, it wasn't speaking. Speaking came about when I uh, moved into freelance consulting because I needed to, I, I found that I had more and more that I wanted to say about the projects I was working on and the things that I was doing. And I also needed to, you know, in a way, it's a form of marketing, right? To say, yes, I, I am someone that you, that knows about things and can speak about them well and would very much want to uh, get out there and in front of folks to be able to do that. Um, it also turned into uh, something where I found younger women needing to see me on stage as uh, a woman in tech who was actually comfortable speaking about technology and being on stage and handling uh, complex audience questions. So it's 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 been an interesting last 10 years of me doing this kind of thing. But Greg, what about you? <laughs> well, like you, it was funny because I think speaking in tech was, let's just call it, it was purely accidental. I was in IT and I was pretty comfortable behind a keyboard, but at some point I eventually somehow found myself owning my own little computer shop. And I guess I'm dating myself saying it was in the dial-up days pre-web. I, I quickly discovered that I would that writing articles would really help the public demystify the technology because it was a real it was a real mystery back then. Now you can find things out easily with Google and and uh, and videos, the YouTube videos. But I also eventually realized that it was something that was great for business. So I was writing these articles that caught the attention of some of the media outlets, and that opened the doors to do freelance writing. That started with a weekly column in our second major daily newspaper in uh, in here in Edmonton. Eventually, of course, it went on as a blog. So the speaking part actually started out small because I ended up giving interviews about you know what was happening in the tech world because of the articles I had written. Often it would be the radio station calling up and say, "Hey, Greg, you know what's the latest gadget or what's can you tell us a little bit about this?" Or there's some disaster 
on the other end of the world and all of a sudden memory chips are are not available and that morphed into tv segments sometimes they would come on site i would show them some of the latest technology and then of course and then product demonstrations in the studio and they get they kept actually having me back but in hindsight looking back at some of the old footage that i've managed to keep i'm thinking i probably could have done better and i I have to admit, I struggled because I was pretty much a shy and introverted person. Then came along Toastmasters, which really set me on my speaking journey. I got coerced by copious amounts, or I should say copious quantities of caffeine, as I'd like to say, to attend a Toastmasters meeting. I joined a club called the New Entrepreneurs Toastmasters Club, which met at the Business Link in Edmonton, which is a center for entrepreneurship. And then one day, one of our members said to me, Greg, would you like to give a brown bag, which they call a lunch and learn session during the noon hour? And I thought, sure. And she says, well, it's going to be an hour. And at that point, I had only done about 10 minutes, the longest speech I'd done in Toastmasters. So I did this promotional strategies for small business. Some of it involved non-technical things, but some of it involved technical things like social media. And then the feedback they got was so good that they had me expand it. So I started doing these presentations for marketing and public relations and small business, and then it expanded to various industries. And I would be doing something like, I would call it gadgets and tech tools for small business or tech tools and gadgets for authors. Often, quite often, I'd be lugging my bag of gadgets. And then I realized that at some point it became more about the application rather than the product itself, right? As opposed to here's the new things, it's exciting, it does this, it does that, it's got you know so much memory, it's got all these gigahertz. But then I started realizing the application became more important. So with with Toastmasters, when I joined the district team, that started opening some doors for travel because our district was actually pretty big. And then I started doing tech for Toastmasters. And then I started the district podcast. And of course, that opens your audience. And all of a sudden, I'm now getting called to, to do all of these different types of presentations. And then eventually, uh, let's see, what can I say here? Um, let's see. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you what might be a silly question, and I'm sure yeah. I should know the answer. What's Toastmasters? Oh, <laughs> Toastmasters is a worldwide organization that helps people improve their communication and leadership skills. It's been around for almost a hundred years. There's over 15,000 clubs. And I think there's about 300,000 Toastmasters. And there's place, nice. there's there's clubs everywhere. That, sound, quite- that sounds fascinating. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> I found, I also found it interesting that, you know, both of us actually started more by writing first. It, you know, first, first you get figure out how to to express yourself in the writing, in your blogs, in your articles, and whatnot, and then uh, somehow it evolves into actual actual public speaking. Well, what I found for me, of course, back then there wasn't as many opportunities to to be able to present live or on the radio, but there were there were opportunities for writing. Then, of course, with the advent of the blog, all of a sudden you could promote your work, and then, of course, with the advent of the internet the writing opportunities for me became few and far between. I mean, I went from going in the, I, I went from being in the computer business to actually becoming a, a full, virtually a full-time freelance writer. But the, uh, the blogs opened up, the, the blogs opened up a lot of doors as well. But then I realized with, with fewer opportunities, then the speaking opportunities started to open. And of course, podcasting just really blew the doors off of that. I, I started podcasting for Toastmasters because I wanted to use the voice because in speaking, that's what we do. We use our our voice. So w- when did you discover your voice was very powerful? <laughs> uh, interesting question. Um, probably, probably mostly during the pandemic of all things, because at that point, what ended up ha- happening for me was there, there were more situations where I was presenting at remote conferences or presenting in webinars or, you know, actually speaking through these things. And because it was all here in front of my computer, I actually wrote out everything I wanted to say. And that just became a, you know, fantastic actor because I was, I reading? Absolutely. I was reading that thing, but I was reading it, you know, in how I, like a, like an, almost like an audio book. This is how I want people to hear this this is my cadence my emphasis my my thing um 
And that worked out really, really well. I think it actually improved my writing as well as my my speaking. <laughs> it's kind of funny because, of course, being in Toastmasters, you're sort of taught to be able to do it without the notes, to be able to not do the do the reading. But what I'm dis- what I've discovered is, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more forgetful. You've got so much information that's being pounded into your head, and you that's when you need to start filtering out. Okay, what's more? What's the most important thing for my audience? You know, what's the most important <laughs> thing that's actually that's actually relative? And uh, yeah, I have to admit, now with the pandemic, I've maybe become either a little bit lazier, become a little bit more reliant on on those notes because i'm always trying to figure out okay what is the most important thing that i want to share with my audience how about you are you do you feel that even though you now are reading the notes that you can get up in front of an audience and just do the same thing without it? uh yeah i th- i think it's an evolution right you have to start somewhere and by all means by the time you you are speaking regularly you don't want to have you know, the whole thing written out in front of you, you will, you really need to get past that eventually, but as a place to start, it's not a bad thing to do. The trick now is, of course, is uh, I give my very first keynote at a uh, an identity conference this May. And being able to prepare for that, I've been to that conference before. There's no notes there for me, right? There's, I don't have my little computer that I can look to. I'm going to have to actually remember 20 minutes of what I want to say, the cadence I want to say it, all of those good things. Um, so that that will be a, a character building experience. I've actually started researching how do you do that? How do you speak? Um, and I, I've told myself, you know, one really important thing that I would also actually recommend to everybody is when you're going to give a talk, pick one message, only one only one, right? If you've, if you've got like so many things you want to say, that's great. That's a whole bunch of different talks. <laughs> um, or, you know, if you're writing, it's a whole bunch of different blogs, or if you're writing a book, it's a whole bunch of different chapters, but you know, for each one, you each chapter, each blog, or each keynote, pick one message and stick to that. Yeah. So that's where Toastmasters comes in. If you go, if you join Toastmasters, that's one thing that you can do. There are, are different paths that you can follow depending on your area of interest and then you can get that that type of feedback because I would have preferred to spend my time totally behind the keyboard rather than than speaking to anyone but I realized that I had to I had to find my way of of getting out there with respect to the one point I still remember my editor at the Edmonton Sun he said Greg you know the problem with you is that you're too interested he said, I didn't say you were interesting. I said, you're too interested. So when I would interview people, and this was during the dot-com, the dot-bomb era, I'd be interviewing these companies that would be coming out with this brand new technology. And he said, you need to focus on one thing. You cannot, you know, in 750 words, you do not have an opportunity to tell the entire story of the company. You need to find one purpose, one message. What's the one thing that people are going to walk away with? And with writing for newspapers, of course, you're limited space. So if they all of a sudden a big ad comes in from a car company and your your article is 750 words, maybe it's 800 words, you, who knows? It could be down to 500. So they might just chop the bottom off of it. So you need to make sure that you catch the attention of the people right up front and make sure that they can walk away with more than, well, this company, this is what this company is, and then there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. Yep. The uh, making sure to do that. You know, one of the things that has also been interesting in the speaking is how the different different types of speaking engagement, you know, you still want to have your one point, but how you give that point is actually really different when you're talking about a session or a webinar or a keynote. The whole, the whole style of how you put this out there suddenly becomes pretty important. The delivery changes quite a bit. And that's something I'm also learning about have observed in some of my favorite speakers and I have to figure out how to do it myself. Is there something, is there some area in particular that you want to focus in on some particular type of, of speaking? Um, good question. I don't know yet. Since my very first keynote will be in May, uh, the first one where I'm actually solo on stage uh, and not part of a panel or part of a pair, I, I don't know how much I'll like it. <laughs> Maybe that's a direction I do want to go, but I don't know yet. The thing about keynotes is that it's so much more about getting people to think, right? Being just a, a little bit, um, I don't want to say contentious, that's not the right word, but you really want to get people engaged, thinking, 
bigger picture. You're telling a story, right? That a story with a message that will send people away with an action that they're excited about. Whereas sessions are usually so much more of like a, a teaching opportunity where I am, you know, maybe I'm teaching you about the different types of standards that exist in the world. Hopefully, so you go do something with that. But, but still, it's, it's, um, you know, a modern day lecture almost more than anything else. What I find with keynotes, whether they're tech related or not, is it's so, so important to, to know who your audience is, not mm-hmm. just knowing who they are, if they belong to XYZ company, but who are the people who are in the audience so that you can figure out the message that you want to tailor to them. But you also want to figure out is, is your, is the, what is your purpose? Is your purpose to inspire? Is it to educate? Is to, is it to entertain? And what time of the day? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be at, because I remember giving presentations on a Wednesday night, and then you use the same, for example, you use the same joke on a Saturday morning at 7.30 in the morning, and it just totally falls flat. And then, of course, you go, note to self, do not use this line or say this joke when you're giving the speech, you know, before 9.30 in the morning. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, mine, mine will be the first thing in the morning on Friday morning at the end of the conference. <laughs> <laughs> So it will, you know, it will be up to me to uh, wake people up and yeah. and end the conference on a good note. But there's no pressure. <laughs> well, if you need any guidance, I'm certainly happy to have a chat with you. <laughs> if I can offer some guidance, I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a lifelong learner. So what I discovered is that, well, first of all, you don't know everything, and it's impossible to to know everything when it comes to technology. Back in the early days. Chances are that I knew a lot about a particular topic, but what I also found was that you can't, number one, you can't absorb anything. And no matter how knowledgeable you are on your topic, there's always somebody out there that knows a lot more than you do. (laughs) And they'll they'll challenge you on it. So, yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about the actual uh, production, the actual act of, of being on stage and speaking, but we haven't really talked about, well, how do you get there from here? You know, how do you actually get your, your sessions or your proposals accepted? Um, this is something that I've actually talked to a bunch of uh, folks about, and I, I know what I'm thinking when I'm thinking identity conferences, but, you know, it, if I asked you that, how do you actually get on those podcasts? How do you actually get those interviews? What would you say? Well, typically, if you're talking about, obviously, getting on an interview and getting on a stage in front of a in front of a group for an organization, they're obviously different. They're different methods. But I think that just listening, like I listen to a lot of podcasts. I walk every single day. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And you you get the feeling for what the podcast is all about. You get the feeling for what the messages that they're trying to put out there. And if you feel that there's something that you can add, then that's one way to to approach them. I get pitches for my podcasts all the time, and it's like, yeah, I, I'm listening to your podcast, and I think it would be really good for your audience, and quite often they're pitches from PR firms. But you can tell that they haven't really listened to your podcast. Now, I don't expect guests to listen to all my podcasts, but you want them to have an idea that what they're offering is something that would be of value. So I think that's probably the first thing is, in terms of getting on a particular podcast, is find if there's some there's some value that you can add. Now, if you want to get onto a podcast that may not necessarily be in your vein, in your area of expertise, but perhaps there's some something addition additional that you can that you can help. So, for example, if I wanted to go on to a podcast, like I'm using an example way back a long time ago when I I, I did tech tools for uh, for authors, and that was long before I had actually written my book. Now. Of course, I'm not an author. I, I didn't know a lot about the book industry, but I realized that authors used a particular tool, used tools. And there, if there was a tool that I could offer them, show them how to use it, show them what value it would add to their to their day, then that's something tech, typically you you could pitch. So, for example, on my the Toastcaster podcast, which originally started as a Toastmasters podcast for Toastmasters in our district. It evolved out to be just general communication and leadership. Well, sometimes I'd find myself without a topic. So what I thought, okay, well, I do lots of gadget stuff. Well, Toastmasters, uh, people who are communicators and people who are leaders use gadgets. So why not find something that would be of value to them? So understand, again, that's understanding your your audience, but also knowing that maybe something that you have might be of value to them. 
That, you that's, know, it, it's, that's not just podcasts. That's what I would say about conferences as well is when you're, if you want to submit something to a conference, you actually do need to know more than just, you know, okay, this is, this is an identity related conference. Sure. But the, the conferences have different, different cultures almost different, mm-hmm. um, just diff- the, the types of things that you would submit to, uh, a formal conference held in Europe is actually probably going to be really different than, a um a glitzier conference held in the US, right? It's all going to be identity information, but you still need to really understand what the audiences there are likely to expect. And if you haven't attended before, you don't really know, you're just trying to break into this. Uh these conferences usually have at least some of their sessions these days posted online that you can look at or you can talk to other people who have attended. And just say, okay, you've been to conference X a whole bunch of times. Can you, can you tell me about it? What's it like? You know, what, what kind of things seem to do well in their, in their, uh, sessions? The, yeah. the, the other point being, you know, is when, when you're, when you've got that under your belt, you're like, okay, I think I have a, a feel for what, what the culture is for that particular conference is get your proposal in front of people in advance who've been there. And say, hey, okay, you've been to Conference X. Does does this proposal sound like something you would want to attend? Um, that public feedback on the submissions before you submit has been the, a game changer for me actually getting sessions uh, submitted so far. Uh, this year I submitted seven to three separate conferences and I've had five accepted. One of them wasn't because I kicked it out as being on the program committee and saying, yeah, this doesn't, this doesn't work for me. <laughs> it doesn't fit in the conference as much as everybody rated it really highly. I'm going to tell you right now, you shouldn't accept my session. Um, but the, the rest, I, I absolutely, uh, blame my reviewers, my pre-reviewers for getting those, getting those in a shape where they would be accepted by the uh, program committees. Yeah. The other thing you might want to consider as well is contacting previous previous speakers or even contacting the committee and just maybe sometimes they'll respond if you ask them what types of things are are you looking for. I mean, sometimes they'll put out RFPs, request for proposal, but other times it could be just something that was just totally random. I, I did a session for one of my Toastmasters events and out of the blue, I get contacted by, it was a, um, it was a ladies group and they had asked me, Greg, you know, would you be willing to put together something for on social media for this for this ladies group? And I thought, oh wow, okay. And it was really scary because I'm like, okay, first of all, this is not. It was totally out of my wheelhouse. But then what I started to do is I just started to ask a lot of questions. And the other thing too, sometimes is you'll get on stage or you'll say ahead of time is that, and I sort of mentioned it before, you may not necessarily be an expert in that particular area. And what I find is sometimes being totally transparent works. And sometimes it's, it's refreshing for them because they don't, they're not getting the same old pitches all the time. And, and Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey player once said, you know, you won't score on a hundred percent of the shots you won't take. So submit it. And if it doesn't go, it doesn't go. And sometimes you can ask, well, why you can ask them why it wasn't accepted. Sometimes they'll tell you. Other times they'll just get. You'll just get a form letter that says, "Sorry, your your proposal wasn't accepted." Or sometimes you just won't even hear it at all. But again, if you try it and put it out there, and sometimes you ask for feedback. I mean, I've done that with even consulting gigs where it's like I asked them, like, I submit a proposal, and I kind of said, "Was there something? Was there something wrong?" And I still remember many years ago, one person said to me, "Your price was too low." <laughs> Really? It was way too low. And I go, okay, well, this, because I would just, I was just starting out. Yeah, those are just, uh, just some of the things. Do we want to chat a little bit about, I'm just curious in terms of being up on the stage, some of the do's and don'ts or some of the things that uh, we can talk about? Any thoughts on that or? Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, well, there, the, the two big things that come to mind, um, and this is something that people have, I'm not sure if they forgot during the pandemic or if I just didn't notice so much when we were starting to um, kick travel back off. The slides that work for you on your computer are not the slides that are going to work in a large uh, auditorium. <laughs> They're just not. <laughs> Uh, the, the contrast has to be a whole lot crisper, right? The, and you don't want to fill them with a wall of words because people can do 
one thing at a time. As much as they would like to tell themselves they can do more than that, no, it's one. And in this case, they can either be reading your slides or they can be listening to you. They can't do both. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. absolutely, you know, get yourself under control with, um, you want your slides to be useful because people will probably download them later as, as something to refer back to, but you've got to get, you got to get the content under control so that what they're there for is you and not, and not the, uh, PowerPoint slides that they might get later. Yeah. It's funny you mention that because on the Toastmasters podcast, my co-host Ryan and I, we recently interviewed a fellow named Dave Henson or David Henson. And he is the, he's called the, the slide presentation guy or the presentation guy. And the podcast will probably be out just probably after this one probably airs. And we did a whole session on adding some life into your slides. And, and one of the things he said, and I still remember this, is he said, your slide deck or your slide presentation is, is your partner, right? And he, he gave the, the example or the analogy of people reading the slides while you're reading the slides. It's like having two speakers on the stage speaking at the same time who are not totally in sync. So I, <laughs> I totally Absolutely. get what, I totally get what you're saying. Um, a couple of things that he brought up. And of course, I think it's, it's, we try to cram in too much. Right. I think we have, do you have the Pecha Kucha where you are, where you try to yes. do a slide every 20 seconds? And when I asked him, we asked him the question is how many slides is the right number? He says, well, as many as it takes to get the point across. But one of the things he mentioned was that it's really one point per slide. And if you are going to have the bullet points on the slide is don't have them all coming up at the same time. And you don't have to put the whole wording in there. He said, people rely too much. And I'm probably a little guilty sometimes of this is I'll use the slides as my, as my notes package really to try to avoid looking, looking at the notes. And one of the things that he had said was that you can create the notes separate from the slides. Cause I agree with you. People are going to want to download the slides. And I recall in sometimes in previous sessions, I was told by the client that they they want the they want the verbiage on the slide because that's what they're going to be handing out at the end of the session but you can create a separate a separate package for that mm-hmm. the other thing of course you brought you brought up the point of it being virtual is that sometimes people forget that not everybody is watching it on a 27 inch screen sometimes people could be watching it on their phones and of course you need to take into account that and not use 8 point font just because you want to try to cram that 7th or 8th word into that line <laughs> Well, you're going to have to, I mean, accessibility is a huge thing for the slides in general. It's not only do you have to account for the fact that people might be, you know, if if they are remote, they might be looking at it on their phones, but there are reasons why they might not be able to see the slides at all, or they might not be able to see the colors on your slides the way, the way you do. You know, there's a whole lot of corollaries to, you know, the slides are absolutely uh, useful and powerful for a large part of your audience. But you cannot be a hundred percent dependent on them to make your point for you. That has that has to come from you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. What are your thoughts on delivering to an audience that's highly technical versus non-highly technical? Well, for eight years, I was the RFC series editor, so I was the executive responsible for um, oversight for publishing some of the most critical internet standards in the world for the Internet Engineering Task Force. And at every IETF meeting, I had the opportunity to stand on stage in front of a thousand of my closest, geekiest friends and tell them what was going on. And, you know, that that right there was actually exactly my trick as to how I handled that. It was a thousand of my closest, geekiest friends. Right? These these This was an audience that I knew really well um, I knew their quirks. Uh, I knew how they received information. And I became, you know, the first time I went on stage, I was just ready to, you know, lose all my composure because it was just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, there's all these people in the audience and they're looking at me. Well, actually, no, mostly they were looking at their computers, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and by year eight, it was uh, a relationship with the people that I truly consider um, friends and colleagues that I wanted to speak to and I enjoyed speaking with and bringing that level of comfort, 
of knowing that this is this is my audience, mine, all mine, uh, made a huge amount of difference in being able to present well. So you knew your audience. That's uh, that's great. That's one of the challenges sometimes when you're speaking, especially if you're a highly technical person, is sometimes in that audience, you might have people who are admins, you may have people who are managers, they may not be technical. So the trick is sometimes is to make sure that you give them something that that they can take in. Because I've, I've been to sessions before where all of a sudden it, people are talking about code, but yet the admins and the managers are there and they're going, it's all totally over their heads. So you always want to try to find out. What I always want to make sure that I try to find out is if I know who's in the audience, if there's a particular manager, particular area, or there's some admins, then you give them something that they can they can chomp on. So how does it make, if, if we implement this coding, for example, I'm just using an example, how is it going to make our processes improve a lot better? Or how is it going to affect the bottom line? Because those are the key words that they're actually looking for. And it, it took me a little while to to figure that part out because you always hear sometimes, well, sometimes you'll hear is cater to the masses. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you'll hear, well, cater to the lowest common denominators. So if let's say you're delivering something that's, you're trying to explain how a process works or how some device or some gadget works. If the majority of the people there are engineers and technologists, then you would talk on the higher level, but then you'd lose everybody else. But then the reverse of that, if you take the lowest common denominator, if you just talk about the advertising or the the features of it, then you're going to lose the rest of the audience. So what I find sometimes it's it's important to try to find a way of of balancing that out. And and what I discovered is if you give each group that you can identify a little bit so that they've got something to take away then it's helpful. And I, I found that the best way to do that is to try to see if you can come up with uh, with some stories and also some humor. So uh, out of curiosity, what are some of the stories that that you share to try to explain some types of technology? That you-, <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, this is this is really funny. Um, for my side project, the Writer's Comfort Zone, we're currently uh, reading. We, we've got a small book club going on where we're reading um, Steven Pinker's A Sense of Style because uh, Writer's Comfort Zone is mostly tech writers, and we're just trying to figure out how to do it better. And chapter three is about the curse of knowledge and how the curse of knowledge means when you know so much about a thing, it becomes really, really hard to explain that thing in terms that a more general audience can do. Um, we're still getting through the book. I'm not going to give away the ending because I don't know what it is. Uh, but he had some really good examples from, you know, like physicists who were able to explain and it is technically accurate and yet completely understandable to all levels as a way of how do you do this well. For me, um, it is a little bit of, of humor and a little bit of um, trying to find a, a common analogy. So by, uh, and it's also trying to find something unexpected to, to bring people in. So uh, coming back to my, my keynote in May, it, it's basic because I've already been working on it. It basically opens up with, you know, a since we're all here as Id- identity practitioners, um, it's great that we're sharing knowledge. It's we're engaging with each other. We're learning about the industry. And so since we're here as these identity professionals, I want to talk about physicists. And <laughs> and then, you know, I have a little story about physicists and uh, the concept of a spherical cow, which is the name of my my consulting business, Spherical Cow Consulting. Uh, and I, and, and that sort of now has drawn people into this story of taking something incredibly complicated, which is what the identity field is and also what physicists have to deal with, trying to squish it down into something you can actually work with and understand and make progress on, knowing that it now doesn't exactly reflect reality anymore, but, um, but it gives you a, a way to make progress. So. That that's that's been a story that's worked for me, or hopefully yeah. will work for me. Yeah, you brought up a couple of really good points there. One of them was the fact that to get people's attention, right? You got to connect with them because sometimes you're on stage, people don't know who you are. And that's where humor can sometimes come in. I know in the techies, they love the Dilbert comics, and I still remember one time doing a presentation, and I found this great comic online. And what it was, it was a it wasn't a Dilbert comic, but it was talking about how miscommunication happens. So this teacher asks the boy is, 
I want you to go to the blackboard and write down the largest number you know. And what he did is he put this giant one, the length of the blackboard. But, you know, using the analogies, trying to compress things down, I find that that for me is quite often something I'll use because you're right. You said there's too much, too much data out there. And uh, even in my little book, Choreo Smarts the Butterflies, it's about a, a little boy who's afraid to do a show and tell and he meets an older boy that guides him through it. When, when uh, one of the characters says to him, go and do some research, he comes back with like, pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of stuff, which is way too much. So you got to find a way of of uh, distilling it down. So you want to try to find a way that, first of all, what's relevant at the time, right? Like when you're doing a resume, you can put in all of the things that you've done or your CV or your proposal, but what's relevant to the audience at that time, but also find a way of, of compressing it down. So for example, if you were a, a high-tech person and you were trying to explain Newton's law of gravity... You wouldn't turn around and start explaining all the numbers and the math and the physics and the calculus. You say, okay, today we're going to talk about what happens when the, when the apple falls from the tree. So the, the concept of way too much information and trying to compress it down into something that makes sense for people. I, I'm with you. That's, it, it's sometimes still a challenge because even when you figure that you've got every point that you say, okay, I've had 12, 15, 20 points. I've got it down to the main three and say, okay, what about this one? And you got to find a way of, you got to find a way of filtering that out. Yeah. Well, spherical, spherical cow, um, go to Wikipedia. It's, it's such an old joke, especially in the field of physics, and it's got its own entry. So you can, you can use that maybe as one of your stories. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I did look it up, but again, with my memory not being as good as it used to be, I forgot what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be your homework then. I was going to say, do you want to give us the 30 foot version of what the spherical cow is or? I don't know. Oscar, do we have time? Of course. I'm fascinated with all your stories. <laughs> okay. Um, so, the, the pricey, a, a dairy farmer uh, is struggling because uh, his cows are not producing milk. Um, this, this, is his, this is his livelihood. So, he's, he reaches out to the local university for help. And they said, don't worry. We're going to send out a multidisciplinary team to assist you figuring out what's wrong with your cows. So, because, of course, that is what universities do. They love interdisciplinary teams. Well, they sent one out, led by a theoretical physicist. And they weighed, and they measured, and they, you know, took their notes, and then they went away. <laughs> and then a month passes, and the poor dairy farmer's like, um, anything? Hello? Help? I mean, I'm, I'm still not getting dairy from my cows. What do I need to do? And the theoretical physicist responded with, don't worry, we've figured out the problem. You just need to start with a spherical cow in a vacuum. <laughs> not, not particularly helpful at the end of the day, but. I have a story. I have a story I sometimes use. It's more cliche. I like yours better, actually. <laughs> I wish I could own it, but yeah. this that story has been around for a yeah. long, long time. It's the old story of trying to figure out what's wrong with the laptop that doesn't work, right? And then some, of course, well, the old, the original story was why the computer wasn't working. And of course, the the techs are ripping it apart and testing all the chips and making sure everything's working. And of course, it turns out that the, it wasn't plugged in, right? <laughs> Sometimes the simplest thing <clears throat> is, I am curious if you have any thoughts or any ideas or things that you've used with respect to, we talked about the stories and analogies, but some other illustrations that um, that might help people under better understand a, a, a difficult con difficult concept or try to get a message across that people aren't listening. Ooh, that's an interesting question, and it really does. It depends so much on you know what audience am I presenting to, how much knowledge do I think they have. Um, and what message do I want them to come away with? I know one thing that I have to be particularly mindful of, and this is, this is something when it comes to the, both the humor and the sort of unexpected hook mm -hmm. is, uh, most of my presentations are international. And so okay. humor, humor is really, really culturally sensitive. And so I have to think very hard about, is this something that that this group will will speak to. If I'm speaking in Asia, 
you know, I'm not going to even try to go for a super engaging, raise your hand if you think this, you know, give me an answer if you think that. I'm not going to do any of that to try and engage the audience because they would be mortified um, to to engage publicly in that manner. Uh, so it, the, the, the message and the motivations will change so much depending on who I'm speaking to. I can't, I can't think of like a, another individual. <laughs> oh, example. no, no, it's okay. I, I didn't mean, I didn't actually mean to put you on the spot because I, I, I was just thinking when uh, Oscar and I were, were talking initially, we were talking about different things about trying to look at tech audiences and non-tech audiences. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you've read the book made to stick. It's, it's an older book by Chip and Dan Heath. Why it's subtitled, uh, why some ideas survive and others die. And this is a, this is an example I quite often use when I'm doing my leadership training when they're trying, when leaders are trying to get messages across to their, to their teams. And the example that they have in the book is that there's a nonprofit that edu- in the U.S. It's, there was a nonprofit that educates the public about nutrition. And what they were trying to get the message across was, I think this was in the eighties or nineties. They were trying to get the message across that popcorn is making people sick. It's unhealthy. And they were trying to get the word, they were trying to get the world to notice the concept of trans fats. Of course, now we have, we have a lot of, a lot of food items that there's, they always say no trans fats. Now, the idea there was that a medium popcorn, like not even a large, just a medium had 37 grams of saturated fat. And they were trying to let the public know that, you know, this is no good. So, and then the USDA was suggesting that the maximum tr- number of trans fats or the maximum amount of trans fat would be 20 grams. But again, if you have no context, then what does that mean? So finally, what they decided to do is they decided to hold a press conference. And what they did is they laid on on the table on one side, a bag of popcorn. And on the other side, they had what did they have was a bacon and eggs and they had a big Mac and fries and there was a steak dinner with all the trimmings. And what they basically said was there is, there is the same amount of trans fat in that bag of popcorn. than there is in all these other items that are here on the table. And that got people to change their idea about things. Mm -hmm. So I use that example because sometimes it's something that people can use visual and also give them, give them context. Cause when you throw out a number, right? Like, this mall is 450,000 square feet. Okay, well, I can't, if you're not a technical person or you're not an architect, you can't really put that into context. But if you can say, well, you could fit 32, 747 jumbo jets in this particular location, that might give you a little bit more context. And uh, that's what the Mall of America in Minnesota does. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have this little fun fact sheet when you go to the mall. And it's just to give you the idea of how large that mall is. Although yeah, I have gonna, to say gonna, that the mo- yeah. I'm going to challenge that a little bit because you yeah. know it, a lot. I bet you a lot of people in the U.S. would say, "How many football fields?" That analogy wouldn't work in Europe because they don't, you know, they, in their in their case, yes, it's football, or in the U.S. we would call it soccer. It's a different field, <laughs> right? Um, yep. And what terms and what size and what it means, you know, the, the airplane is good because everybody has seen airplanes though with 747s going out. We'll have to pick up something else, maybe an Airbus. 380. Yeah. I don't know. No, that's a but, no, no. That's a really good no. That's a really good point. Actually, you're, you're right. And of course, the football field in Canada is larger than the football field in the U.S. So that would actually, you know, the uh, the guys who are perfect measurement guys that they go, no, 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 that's not going to. No, you're right. And again, that goes back to to knowing your audience and understanding who you are, uh, understanding who the audience is, and and where you're speaking. That's a really really good point. I mean, obviously, before giving a presentation, there's a lot of homework to be done, and it's not just simply about taking the material that you have and delivering it, just basically basically feeding it to your audience. It's just a matter of finding out what's important, what's relevant. So, no, that's a, real, that's a really, really good point. I have not had as many, maybe as many opportunities as you have to speak to international audiences. I, I have spoken on a few Zoom calls where there were people in other countries. And of course, you need, sometimes you need to do the measurement calculations differently, the, the centigrade versus Fahrenheit and the feet, feet versus meters, et cetera. And I have tried as best as I could. And again, that's also important when you, it goes back to even doing your proposals is try to find someone who is with the organization or, or, or someone who is in the community that you're speaking to, if you're not part of that community, to help guide you through some of that. That's, that's really, really, really important. 
and it's funny you're as you're speaking about this, I'm thinking not only measurements and football fields, but acronyms and jargon. That's a big thing for techies, eh? <laughs> oh, that's 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 actually like a huge part of the whole curse of knowledge thing. You know? <laughs> On the one hand, you don't not want to use them because it gets to be a mouthful to, you know, regularly say identity and access management in in identity governance and administration in, you know, all all of these terms over and over again. And yet if you don't spell them out a few times, you're you're automatically going to lose some people. I was a member of, we have in Canada, we have our provinces and territories and we have a, an or, we had an organization a number of years ago, which was uh, the various digital media associations from across Canada became, we had an alliance called the Canadian Interactive Alliance. So of course the acronym, <laughs> you know, I'm with the CIA, right? <laughs> Uh, there's probably a lot of examples out there. Well, you see it all the time. You have acronyms on posters. You have acronyms on advertisements. You see acronyms on Facebook, LinkedIn posts, and you go, okay, what is this all about? You know what gets That's, to be really uh, fun is when the acronym becomes so ubiquitous that even people in the field don't actually know what it stands for. You know, that they've, they've it's almost become a, its own word in some or, cases. Or it's changed. Yeah. Can you? Th- I'm trying to think. Can you think of any? Put you on oh, the spot. Off the top of my head, yeah. If, if you ask people, um, this again, now this comes back to the identity community, and you talk about NIST and the the NIST standards. It's like, okay, so NIST stands for. I was thinking National Institute of Science and Technology. I don't know. Standards and technology. <laughs> standards and technology. Yeah. Yep. But sometimes it's like national inform national information and standard. Not, you know, and they don't know. They just know it's NIST. So. That's- I actually just guessed that. I didn't really know what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> wow, lucky guess. Maybe I should get a lottery ticket today. There you go. <laughs> uh, oh. Wow. Time. Oscar yeah. says it's time. Time <laughs> is flying, eh? Time is flying. When I hear so many stories like the yes, ones sir. you tell, you are really super storytellers, eh? Not only telling us what I is had... the best way to speak in tech, but telling in stories. So fascinating. I had this going in a totally different vein, Oscar. But you know what? I'm this is great. I'm 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 thrilled to have been on the show, and also happy to to have met Heather. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Definitely much fun. It's been fun. Let's have a final question for each of you. Let's take it randomly. Let's see what comes. Okay, for Heather, share with us an exercise, something practical that you would recommend us doing regularly, a routine to shine. Get used to hearing yourself in a recording. It's the most awful, uncomfortable, terrible <laughs> thing, but just you 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 have to power through, get over it, get used to it, and embrace the fact that you know for me, when I hear my voice on a recording, I'm pretty sure I sound like I'm twelve. <laughs> you know it's just let it go and get used to it. yeah, that's great advice. yeah, I couldn't agree more. I do that quite often as except when I don't have time. It's, it's very helpful. Sometimes it's painful, <laughs> but that helps you to to do it better when you are preparing for a very important, especially for a very important interview or a keynote, a very important presentation. It's, 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 it's very good to have this feedback, hear yourself, sometimes see yourself in a video if needed. So yeah, thank you for that advice. And for Greg, the question, let's see which one comes to Greg. Please share with us your favorite quotation. My favorite quotation, it sort of has two parts to it. It's by the late Steve Jobs, who I had a wonderful opportunity of meeting on two occasions. And I listened to him give a keynote one time, and he used used the quote, have the, it was, no, the quote was, use your mind and follow your heart. But he's also used a similar quote called, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. I put those words to the test many, many years ago. I had worked and gone to school. I was on a seven-year plan. I had a great job in IT, was making really good money, but my heart said, Greg, no, you want to be an entrepreneur. You want to go into your own business. And I took those words, and it took me a while, but I did put them into practice. I'm glad I did, and I never looked back. So use your mind, but follow your heart. Have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. Yeah. That's my quote. Very inspiring. Thank you very much for that. 
You're yes, it's been super interesting hearing this conversation with you. Uh, more, way more than I expected. As I said, so many stories from you. It's great pieces of advice. Uh, I'd like to have a final word from each of you, Heather. Um, sure. So I guess final words for me is that I I'm regularly writing uh, two two separate blogs that I would love to have people look at and engage with and tell me what you think. One is on sphericalcowconsulting.com. And the other one is on the writer's comfort zone dot community. So please, please come look those up and uh, let, let me know what you think of them. I'd love to have the feedback. Thank you. And final words, Greg. Final words with respect to speaking is that if you're going to be talking to a tech audience and you're not so technical, you can still be an impact. Feel free to be transparent. Let people know that you're not necessarily the tech person, but have the courage to know that the strength you have in the information that you could provide them or in the skills that you have can be can be applicable to a lot of people and i find if you do that i think it'll it'll work and you don't necessarily have to strive for perfection but set some sort of standard of excellence and say i have a message that i want to share and don't worry about the fact that you may not be perfect in that if people are interested again i'm the the host and producer of the Toastcaster podcast. It's like Toastmaster, but with a C. Also the Toastmasters podcast, which I do twice a month for Toastmasters International. And if you want to find my blogs and other things, gadgetguy.ca or gadgetgreg.com. Oscar? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you again. I've been really fascinated uh, talking with you, hearing you, <laughs> mostly talking between you, but hearing those stories and having this this chat with you. Uh, fantastic. We 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 come different uh, backgrounds, but we we have a lot in common. Actually, not only speakers in tech, but also writers. So yeah, we have a really great time with you together. Thanks a lot, Heather and Greg. All the best. Thank, Thank you, you, Oscar. It's been an honor. I, I'm a longtime follower of your podcast and. I also take, I've loved to listen to the Time to Shine and Routines to Shine. Thank you. Are you working on the tech industry? If so, do you want to start taking action, crafting your own tech talk, and soon getting booked to speak? I have designed specially for you who work in the technology industry an online training program. Rock the Tech Stage On Demand is an online self-paced training course to become a successful speaker in tech events. Visit today www.rockthetechstage.com slash on demand and start your journey now.